Matt Stone is one of Graceland's top 10 Elvis tribute artists in the world. The 19-year-old Florida native is taking the industry by storm. With Matt's remarkable voice and fiery stage presence, he has earned the adoration of fans all across the country. I'm delighted to say that Matt joins me on today's show to discuss how he was bitten by the Elvis bug and how it led to him to become a successful Elvis tribute artist. Matt also discusses with me his opinions on the recent Baz Luhrmann movie and the brand new Netflix animated show, Agent Elvis. Hi Matt, welcome once again to Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel. Thank you very much for welcoming me, Steve. It's an honor to be back on. Yeah, back on is right. Now, we were just saying before we came live that uh, we've done this before, but we were trying to remember how long ago. I think it's three years, and I think it was before that damn COVID. Yeah, I can't remember. Uh, I think it was during COVID, uh, as far as I remember. I think we were on with uh, Jake Bailiff and uh, I think Logan, maybe? Yes, Logan Rainey, is yeah. that right? and uh, Patricia as well. Yes, to, yes, to, and Patricia too. Yes, that's right. Yeah, we had a great time, and uh, I, I'm still as fascinated as ever about you know the, the young people uh, being such massive Elvis fans, and that that's really what I want to start the the interview with is how a 19 year old fella like yourself got bitten by the Elvis bug. How did it all start? How did it all happen? So I think that. The all the cheesy Elvis pop culture references and little things that came out of the nineties, um, as terrible as they might seem to us real fans, I mean, it was really that kind of cheesiness that bit me in the first place. Uh watching Uncle Jesse as Elvis on the show Full House. It ran from nineteen eighty seven to nineteen ninety five. Um, just really, you know, cheesy, you know, thank you very much and all that. And <laughs> Uncle Jesse he put on a jumpsuit and he sang uh an Elvis concert on an episode he sang jailhouse rock for his wedding he just john stamos who's you know really a huge fan yeah um he was the one who i first heard sing those songs through watching the show and after watching him do them i just looked up the real version i watched jailhouse rock and i thought it was the coolest thing i'd ever seen you know elvis was sliding on tables and yeah the cool guys in the background with the cardboard instruments and it was just it was so cool so a lot of people talk about how we elvis was kind of reduced to a pop culture character but that character it it brings people into elvis in the first place in some cases myself being one of those people well the jailhouse rock sequence was definitely one of the highlights of elvis's movie career that's for sure absolutely and he choreographed that himself yeah, he did. Yeah, they went to uh, to film the show uh, because they they tried to give him a you know real dance sequence, something kind of like what we'd see in uh, what, what's that film um, from '61 that Elvis West Side Story. They wanted to do something like that, yeah, like a musical choreographed dance sequence. They gave it to Elvis, and he tried to do it, and he couldn't catch on to it. So they went out and they filmed the show, filmed one of his shows on tour, and kind of created a choreographed sequence based off of his own moves so i'm really curious now that i mentioned that which show that was that they filmed Mm. and what happened to that film yeah yeah (laughs) and you know another thing i always watch out for when they're when i'm watching that sequence is this is when elvis actually aspirated his uh, tooth cap didn't he yeah yeah he swallowed his tooth (laughs) during that sequence Now, now I'm not sure whether the actual moment he did that appears on the film or not, or whether it was another take or something like that, but they had to stop the filming, didn't they, for a day or two, and he had to go in and get it uh, surgically removed by a broncoscope yeah, or something like that. So funny four, four, because that's the end of the film. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> the end of the film, he has surgery after after he gets punched in the throat and they're afraid he can't sing anymore, and the, yeah. and the same thing happened during the during the filming. Yeah, and they didn't believe him at first. He he says, uh, you know, he was he was breathing in and out, and there was a whistling, and they thought, uh-huh. no, it's just a little bit of phlegm or something like that. And he and he says, well, that phlegm has just moved, and then he says, <laughs> and he showed them he showed them where the tooth cap should have been, and they said, uh oh. And of course, when they said that they were going to have to part the vocal cords, I think Colonel Parker nearly had a heart attack when he heard that. Oh, I'm sure he did. <laughs> it's, it's amazing, actually, when um, Elvis fans talk 
and they go off on little tangents, don't they? As they discuss, <laughs> we a, do it as, all the time. Yeah, as they discuss a topic, it reminds them of something else that happened while that was happening. And I always think of that tooth thing when I when I watch Jailhouse Rock. Now that sequence. Okay, so um, yeah, sorry. So so carry on about uh, get, getting bit by the bug, the Elvis bug. Yeah, so after I watched John Stamos sing uh, Jailhouse Rock on Full House, I watched the real version, and for a very short time, I was really only interested in three, four songs, um, Jailhouse Rock, Hound Dog, and uh, Dixieland Rock was another one that I found somehow. I mean, that's hardly a hit song, Mm. but that was a song that I just absolutely loved, and I just wore those three songs out. And, you know, the obsession at first of me being 13 and listening to these three songs kind of wore off a little bit until uh, it also I completely bought into the media lie that Elvis was terrible in the 70s and without ever watching it. And for some reason, I just, you know, took that at face value and didn't watch anything from the 70s. And then one day, um, Suspicious Minds from August 11th. Uh, dinner show from that's the way it is came up on my youtube recommended and i watched that clip and because i saw you know the thumbnail on the video elvis looked he looked thin and trim and wow this is elvis in the 70s huh well everything that i'd ever heard about it was a lie this is the most energetic incredible performance i'd ever seen and that opened up the door to a whole new a whole new obsession of all the that's the way it is stuff the first album i bought um on itunes was an album they put out in 2003 i think called elvis live in las vegas and it has um one of the august 1969 shows it has um august 12th 1970 in it and some other shows just no other full shows but some rare songs he did in vegas like green green grass to home and it has the the 50s vegas engagement in there and i just really fell in love with all this vegas stuff I think I bought that when I was actually in uh, Memphis uh, visiting Graceland in one of the shops across the road. This was before the big complex. This was in 2002. And it's as you say, it's a great set. Um, it is a really great set. You're familiar with the um, sequence that was filmed for Elvis, that's the way it is, when he sits down, gets the electric guitar and does Little Sister and Get Back. Mm-hmm. Uh, fabulous sequence and I think I think that that epitomizes Elvis in Las Vegas that's the Elvis in Las Vegas that people should remember not the later sort of 75 and 76 when he was clearly bored of Vegas by then mm-hmm. but that's absolutely the, but that's the Elvis that uh, everybody seems to latch on to especially the media you know mm-hmm. the 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 when the they love to find the negatives yeah and when the 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 jumpsuits got sort of really really sort of almost gaudy and uh-huh. like the me- fire suit and yeah. uh even like the pontiac suit uh that he wore at the silver dome mm. it's it's completely plain it's just a hideous hideous suit and something happened with those designs where they got to be a little bit too much, even when they were on the more plain side. But something really cool about what you just mentioned when he did the sit-down show on um, on August 12th, because you know he did the sit-down stuff all throughout 1969, every show. He was doing, Baby, Baby what you want me to do? Run away? Are you lost in a night? He did the, uh, the stand-up section with the Gretsch at the Houston Astrodome earlier in 1970. He did it uh, August 12th. He sat back down again. And that's the last time that I can think of that there's any kind of footage of him playing the Gretsch on stage. But if you look closely at all the shows that came afterwards, up until about 1973, you can see the Gretsch country gentleman sitting behind Charlie on stage just in case Elvis wants to play it. It's even yeah. there in Aloha from Hawaii. Yeah, yeah. And also, um, we've got a case of him. Was it closing night in February 1970? They added an extra show. Was it a 3 a.m. show? And, I so. and he sat down at the piano and did Blueberry Hill and Lordy Miss Claudia. Lordy Miss like Claudia, that. that's right. Yeah, I saw at the um, at the Hard Rock, um, the Hard Rock restaurant in Universal at uh, in Orlando. You know, every Hard Rock has an Elvis room, so every time I see a Hard Rock, you have to go in and you have to find the Elvis room yeah. to see what they have in there. Yeah, and something really, really cool that I found um, in there was this this rehearsal set list, and it had some songs on there. I'm 
I believe that the set list was created for like January, February of 71 or maybe Tahoe in 71, but it has some songs on there. Like, where did they go, Lord? Yeah. To, to be rehearsed, to be rehearsed for the show. And it also had Lottie Miss Claudia on there. And next to Lottie Miss Claudia, Claudia has written piano. Right. It's like, oh, how cool is that? There's so many songs that he was doing live in the 70s or just rehearsing, wanting to bring into the set that, that were never used. Yeah. So what I'm really trying to say, I think anyway, is the Elvis Las Vegas we should really remember is from 69, maybe to 72, maybe early part of 73. But after that, he was clearly bored, I think. And I think he'd had enough of Vegas, to be honest. I agree. Um, the, the August 72 shows, like there's an FTD, an FTD called What Now My Love that it's it's also August 12th, I think, of 72. And it's one of the most incredible shows that he ever did in Vegas, in my opinion. Uh, so, and also, I, I really think that Elvis, when he had a new girlfriend around, he always upped his game. Yeah. So August 72, he was amazing. That was the first set of shows that Linda saw. He was also great in November 71. Uh, Joyce Bova had brought her family out to go see Elvis's show. So he really upped his game and he was having Joyce on tour with him there. And uh, December 76, same thing with, with Ginger. He was always taking it up a notch when he had a new girlfriend around. And that's something that I think is really cool. But by, you're right, by January, or uh, not January, February of 1973 in in Vegas, the show had really started to bore him. I mean, they were starting to cancel shows and he was mm -hmm. getting sick and he having was, to leave the stage he, early. He was doing karate demonstrations. He was reading from books and things like that. So, yeah, mm -hmm. I mean, it, it all does point towards boredom. Mm -hmm. There's that great picture of him in the uh, red Spanish flower suit where he just has, <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's a Bible, open in his hand open in his hand and he's just standing there in the jumpsuit reading from the bible yeah <laughs> hmm. yeah i'm sure the vegas audiences love that and i'm sure the <laughs> management loved it while they're trying to get people to gamble <laughs> exactly yeah but of course devastatingly handsome whatever it, whatever the lighting is Absolutely. on that photograph devastatingly handsome uh we've got, we, we've gone off at a tangent again matt and i just absolutely love it <laughs> i really do love it um, Me too. the listeners are, are probably just thought they've just stumbled across a private uh, phone conversation between two elvis fans and that's probably what it is <laughs> Is anyway so it is what it is yeah it is what it and is it's the best podcast material <laughs> exactly so um let, let, let's let's get to the, the the kernel of the matter as well you are a uh, elvis tribute artist and uh tell me how the process then sort of came from just the fan to being a tribute artist so it was being uh i, w I was always naturally an imitator of whatever I liked all throughout my life. I mean, when I was three, four years old, I was uh, a huge Led Zeppelin fan and I was imitating Robert Plant from Red, from Led Zeppelin, not professionally, but uh, I was I was three years old and singing on my parents' bed and making videos singing along to Led Zeppelin songs. And I mean, I was Jimmy Page from Led Zeppelin for Halloween one year. I was Billy Idol from Billy Idol <laughs> uh, for Halloween another year. I mean, I just always wanted to, I guess, kind of recreate what amazing uh, singers and musicians were doing. So naturally, when I found Elvis, I think it was the same night that I first watched Jailhouse Rock. I grabbed a leather jacket from my closet, one of my microphone stands, because uh, I was always a guitar player. And so I had, you know, equipment and stuff. And I came downstairs and I just sang Jailhouse Rock. And I didn't know the song very well, but... I knew that I wanted to do it. Um, two years later, yes, two years later, uh, a friend of mine invited me to an open mic night, and I sang a few songs. I don't even think I sang any Elvis songs that night. And But as time went on, I started adding some Elvis songs to my set at the open mic night, and I started singing at some nursing homes and stuff. And of course, when you have an older crowd, you have more of an excuse to do some Elvis songs rather than Led Zeppelin. I don't think that goes over too well in memory care. <laughs> but um, I, it was more so myself singing Elvis songs as myself, not really as Elvis. And as time went on, I started to really look up to a lot of the other ETAs and almost 
becoming a tribute artist for the other tribute artists, which is a trap that I see so many of these young ETAs falling into. And it's really, it's really sad because I mean, there are kids who you go to these Elvis competitions and you see them in the dressing room and they're watching a video of Dean Z or, you know, Cody Slaughter stuff to get ready and to get pumped and to figure out what they're going to do. And I tell like, no man, just watch Elvis. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But, uh, I'd really fallen into that trap of, I guess, wanting to be an ETA. And I think it was really during COVID when I kind of broke that mold and I fell out of love with all these ETAs and I really fell in love with Elvis himself and wanted to do Elvis right and wanting to do it justice and wanting to do it authentically, which is really, I think, what separates my show from a lot of others is that I want to do everything perfectly authentic to what Elvis did at that specific time. So rather than just wanting to be entertaining and kind of, you know, look like Elvis and sing some Elvis songs that everybody loves. If I'm, if I decide for the show I'm doing February, 1971, I'm putting on my not suit and I'm closing with impossible dream. And I'm doing all those songs from those shows. And I, and I don't, I don't break what I say I'm going to do. Yeah, so you assembled the band. Um, what have you got? Who, who, and what have you got in the band? So right now, um, I reached out to a real good friend of mine. His name is Sean Bryant. He was, or he is, a guitar player for uh, Dwight Eisenhower and other ETA, and uh, and he works with Ted Torres sometimes. And he just he knows the material well. He saw Elvis live um, in '77. And he just knows a ton of musicians. I mean, this guy's been on this in the musician scene for so long. Uh, Jerry Chef once replaced him in a band in the eighties. Oh, wow! <laughs> like he's he's been with these people for a long time. Like real good friends with Bob Lanning, and uh, we're actually working on getting Bob for a show right now because that that'd be so cool. Mm. I would love to. I would love to actually get Bob Lanning on the show. Actually, to have a quick word with him. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah, that'd be real cool. If yeah. when when I do the. Uh, when I, or if I do the show with Bob, I'll tell him, Hey man, you got to do an interview with Steve. Thanks. Thanks a lot. But, um, so he kind of put together a, a crew of musicians for me of just a, a little bit of a rhythm section to work with. And we've gone through a few drummers trying to find one who really, you know, captures who Ronnie was. And I mean, that's, that's the hardest part of finding a group. Yeah. I mean, James, it's, it's a distinct style, but it's one that can be re- replicated. Jerry Chef, same thing. Glenn Hardin, same thing. Mm. But when it comes to Ronnie, you have to have a really excellently confident drummer who can work his way through a kit, but also has incredible reflexes to accent exactly what you're doing at that moment. There can't be any delay. Yeah. So like, yeah, he has to watch you wind up before the thing for him to hit the symbol or. Yeah. whatever it is i mean ronnie well, was well we as elvis was as we as elvis fans know that elvis was ronnie's conductor wasn't he he was uh, he was he was always urging ronnie to watch me because if you watch me mm-hmm. you'll, you'll be able watch to follow hook. yeah exactly yeah yeah so uh, and let, let's go to the jumpsuits because i've watched your videos i've watched your shows on your website oh by the way fantastic website by the way i will be oh, we'll be giving you, we'll, we'll be giving the address out uh, near the end of the show um and you you've got the 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 actual jumpsuits down to a fine art as well i've looked at them and they are spot on oh thank you man yeah um i work with a few different companies that uh do some amazing things like b&k of course does amazing work they did all the all the suits for the Elvis movie. And unfortunately with some of the suits, I think B and K has kind of fallen into doing just the B and K thing, uh, where they make their suits a certain way, like that they think looks even better than what Elvis did. For example, their peacock jumpsuit, the turquoise on it is really, really bright when Elvis's wasn't. And they're just dead set on making it that color. Yeah. So I, I, I tend not to buy every suit B and K because some of them are, aren't as perfect um and they're also a little bit expensive um pro elvis jumpsuits is a great alternative and they're they're a lot more affordable and if you tell them to do a certain thing they'll try to customize your suit to the way that you need it yeah i like it for example i'm telling i tell them like make the collar a little bit bigger a little bit floppier and um they'll leave the chest a little bit bigger in the suits. Cause a lot of these suits are just so God awful tight on, on so many people <laughs> yeah. when Elvis's suits weren't that tight. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. they were tight in the waist, but they weren't tight in the chest. 
And uh, there's another brand uh, called AJM out of um, Thailand, and he does an incredible, incredible job at making authentic suits, the, mo- the most beautiful suits you've ever seen. They look like they're straight off the mannequin at Graceland. So take me through some of the suits that you, the 1970s and 1969 uh, suits you have. I've seen you in the red ladder suit, uh, the concho, is that right? Mm-hmm, yeah, so right now I have the um, the turquoise concho, the uh, ladder suit. Uh, I actually just sold, I, I just sold a ton of suits that I had um, because I'm, I'm making room for more of them. But I did keep a good amount of them around, so... I have the red ladder, the turquoise concho. Um, I just got a Spanish flower. I have the um, the Aloha I just got, and I haven't worn it yet. Um, the Pharaoh, the sleek tapestry, um, the planet suit, the starburst, uh, the burning love, and I have one of those North Beach leather suits that he wore in uh, in 1974 as well. The outline of the show, um, do you, what sort of period do you cover from 69 to 77? Is it just the early 70s? I try to stick 1969 to 1972 as much as I can, but I have been getting a little bit more into the 73 shows. I don't see myself going past that very much, but I did just book something new just for fun. Uh, I do this little theater about uh, four times a year, probably every three months, where we come up with these period shows where I've done GI blues and we did all the songs from GI blues. And then we did Elvis's back. We did those sessions and recreated the sessions on stage. Very good. We did uh, blue Hawaii. We did girls, girls, girls. And, uh, we're doing an Easter show, um, next week. I'm not sure when this is going to air. And, uh, right after that, our next show that we have planned is called moody blue. Cause I'm always looking to do things that I don't do at my regular shows. So we're opening the show with the Jungle Room sessions, mm-hmm. and then I'm going to do Elvis's show at the West Palm Beach Auditorium in 1977. Very good. So that's going to be something completely untapped for me. Uh, I mean, I'm not the best physical representation of Elvis in 1977, but it's something that I've always wanted to to kind of put together and, and do it. So I'm going to do it for a run of three or four shows, and then probably hang that suit up for a while. <laughs> Okay, that's great. Now, how how long is is your show? Do you kind of do a full show just like Elvis did, an hour an hour long? Right. A lot of theaters want to do ninety minutes, so I'll I'll try to extend as much as I can to ninety minutes. But I'm always taking from the same period. So if Elvis was doing, you know, showing that's the way it is, he'd probably take one or two of his recent cuts, like "I've Lost You" or "Just Pretend" or. Uh, 20 days and 20 nights and just cannot believe in i will try to take like three or four of those newer cuts and put them in just to extend the show and have it be era appropriate and have it fit what he was doing at the time but still fill the necessary time for a show yeah okay um let, let's move on a little bit do you let's talk about some rare footage that came out recently uh st louis 1973 at the airport do you see that I did see that footage. That's that's so cool. Yeah, it, it just it makes you wonder just how much else is out there to be shown, doesn't it? Absolutely. I mean, there are so many people who like to hog eight millimeter footage for themselves. It's really sad. I mean, it's probably owned by the same guy who's listening to the tape of Elvis and the Beatles jamming. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, if only. <laughs> yeah. But th- there's a ton of stuff out there. Apparently, there's full footage of Elvis on opening night in 1969 from from a balcony shot. People on forums who say, yeah, I've seen little snippets of it, and I don't know who owns the whole thing, but it's out there. A friend of mine just sent me today a little audio sample of Elvis live in Detroit in 1957, and it was like five seconds long. But that's the only live show that I can think of being audio recorded in 1957 yeah and apparently there's a full thing out there and well who just, knows? just going back to opening night uh, 1969 i spoke to steve barilli last week uh and the interview aired uh, just the last couple of days and i said to him i can remember seeing a photograph on facebook uh of 
a reel, an eight millimeter reel of opening night 1969, but I can't remember who was supposed to have been selling it and you know where where they where it was. Wow! But uh, it's supposed to exist because we have RCA. Their first show they recorded or somebody recorded was August the third. But I mean, yeah, yeah, that was the first recorded, uh, the first bootleg performance from Vegas, and I'm pretty sure there's a guy who recorded. I think it was the seventh. I can't remember what his name was. He also was there on August 1st and recorded it and it was confiscated. Oh. So our, so the people at, at the, at the international, the security was stopping people and grabbing their bootlegs and confiscating them. Right. I want those things probably all went in the dump. Oh, sad. That's annoying. <laughs> Very annoying. Um, have you, have you a best Elvis concert? Best Elvis concert. It's, it's so hard to pick, man. Uh, it, I could, I could really pick things by the era that they were from, like best show from January, February 70, I think is opening night, yeah. January 26th. And, um, that's the way it is. Show would be, uh, August 12th, but September 3rd is also great after they left. Um, in 1971, I think his bo- his show in Boston garden, um, is absolutely phenomenal. I think it's the best version of bridge over troubled water. He ever did pity. It wasn't filmed. <laughs> but yeah it's so sad man of course there, they, 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 a, they had uh, madison square garden in mind and of course that wasn't filmed but it was it was obviously professionally recorded though mm-hmm. yeah and speaking of we were talking about opening night in 69 uh there were f- camera crews there who were interviewing the celebrities who were coming into the show exactly and yeah. man they didn't get anything from the actual show <laughs> how sad is that yeah <laughs> Yeah, uh, I think it might have been something to do with Colonel Parker, if, if oh, the truth yeah. be told. Something tells me. Yeah, yeah. What about that Hawaii photograph that surfaced as well a few months back? Um, uh, people were saying it was taken just before or just after Aloha from Hawaii. But uh, Ma- I did a show on it uh, when it came out, and I firmly believe, even though it said March 1973 on the border of the print, that was, of course, when it was printed, but I think mm-hmm. it was taken either in May 1972 or November 1972. He was in, he was in Hawaii those two occasions, one to get a tan for Madison Square Garden, and then he was in concert in November in Hawaii, wasn't he? I, yeah, I believe it was May uh, of 72 as well i think he, he wasn't as tan as he was in that picture in november and it was the clothes he was wearing as well because there's photographs of him on the flight back to the states and he's wearing the same sort of thing the blue yeah, pants right. the and gold belt and too. yeah 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 <laughs> yeah uh, that's right that's right and he also he looks a little bit puffier than he did um in, in aloha i mean he had lost every ounce of baby fat on his face yeah um he, he looks to be a little bit bloated in that photo so i i can't believe that it would be january of 73 he was way too thin and um completely lost all of his every ounce of body fat on him yeah, for that show yeah. him and sunny west went on a what is it a 500 calorie a day diet or something for a few weeks yeah, before and they were also doing um that that uh hormone that pregnant women have they've been able to for for weight gain today they isolate it and they'll give you an injection of just the hormone but they were doing injections of pregnant woman urine <laughs> yeah. back in the day because yeah. it had the hormone in it and they didn't know how to isolate it yet wow wow some crazy stuff that yeah. he did for that show yeah but he did look he did look fantastic he really did he did and of course clearly you can tell the difference between the rehearsal show and the actual broadcast show because mm-hmm. of the hair he didn't like the way his hair looked when he watched the playback of the rehearsal show he didn't like the way his hair looked so he was it patty parry he got to do a haircut for him mm-hmm. style. i believe so I believe it was Patty. I was just, I'm reading Joe Esposito's book right now. Have you ever read it? No, uh, Rock in the Night? No. It's fantastic, man. Uh, there, are all, there are so many books that like to tell the same stories over and over and over again, just from different perspectives. Joe's book actually brings in stories that a lot of people have never heard before and stories that I've never seen written in any other books. And he was talking a lot about um, when Patty came over for the first time and Elvis paid her. $750 to do a haircut for him. Wow. <laughs> um, because she did, she said, no, I will not be, I will not take anything. And so he gave her 750 bucks as a tip 
And then she said, I'm never, ever charging you for another haircut for the rest of my life. You're not, you're not doing that. But then Elvis was buying her cars and everything else. I'll have to check to see what $750 equates to in today's uh, amount. It yeah. sounds like an awful lot of money. <laughs> mm-hmm. The funniest thing about Joe Esposito's book is 90% of it is about the science of moving girlfriends around for Elvis. And like, you know, keeping one in a different room until the next one left for him to bring the next one in and organizing the flights. Like Joe said, right in like the first page, that was one of the biggest parts of his job was organizing the flights and the rooms for the different girlfriends who were coming in as soon as the other one left. What was the title of Joe's book? Uh, Good Rockin' Tonight. Good Rockin' Tonight. There's another one as well he's done as well, Straight Up as well. That's another one, I think. Uh, that's, that's right, yeah, I'll have, to, I'll have to check that one out. Yeah, this is Good Rockin' Tonight, Good and it's, rockin uh, tonight. it's yeah. a fantastic, fantastic book. He also yeah. talks a lot about the uh, the Paris trip in 1959, mm-hmm. some really some really funny stories. <laughs> you, do, you, do you read a lot of Elvis books? I try to. I try mm. to read as many as I can. Yeah, it, it, you're probably like myself, you know, with you busy doing the shows and me doing the channel and working as well, it's kind of hard to sit down and read a book, an Elvis book. I used to, many, it many is. years ago, I used to read a lot of Elvis books, but I haven't read as many as I, I used to. Um, I found the Peter Goralnik uh, Volume 1 and Volume 2 fantastic reads. It's very, very good. Uh, my one complaint about Last Train to Memphis is that the beginning of it goes a little bit slow and it reads uh, very statistically. And it's really just like at 4 a.m. the tornado hit on this date in 1947. <laughs> yeah. And, or, yeah. You know, whenever it was, or 1937. Yeah. And, but once you get past that, I, I tried to read that when I was like 14 and I couldn't get past the beginning of it, but I, I powered through. Uh, probably a year later and i was so happy i did because especially careless love like just amazing amazing books yeah it's it's heartbreaking at at, at, at at certain junctures though isn't it when you can see it's actually called the unmaking of elvis presley isn't it mm-hmm. uh, yeah which, uh, it is. Is, is kind of accurate in a way what about the uh, alan and nash books as well there's two good books there the elvis and the colonel and the revelations one as well two good books i think i haven't read any of her books yet and i I have, um, I believe it's Elvis and the Colonel. No, it's it's a different book on Colonel Parker. Yeah, I don't have any of her books yeah. yet, and I I need to get into them. I have a uh, I have a few things on my list here. Um, I'm doing Joe's, and then I bought um, the book about Anita Wood that her daughter wrote. Oh yeah. Um, being Elvis, A Lonely Life by Ray Connolly, I've heard amazing things about. Yeah, I interviewed Ray for this uh, channel. And, of course, I interviewed uh, Alana as well. Um, one book you really don't want to bother with is the uh, Albert Goldman book, Elvis. If you, if you ever get offered to read that, don't don't waste <laughs> your time because it's just a, a, an assassination on Elvis's character. It really is. Oh, really? But unfor- but unfortunately, Lamar Fike had uh, sort of uh, dealings with that. He provided some research and information for Albert. But he, he did say later that, you know, he didn't agree with a lot of what uh, Albert wrote. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of fictionalized things. For example, Bill O'Reilly has a new book um, called um, something about celebrity. It's, uh, oh, man, I can't remember what it's called. But uh, it's about Elvis and John Lennon and Muhammad Ali. And in that book, it says Elvis would throw his guitar into the audience in a fit of rage. So, hmm. No, he was throwing his guitar out to be generous. Yes, that's <laughs> and right. And he tried to give his guitar away. He's not some mad dude who's throwing his guitar out at the audience just because he's angry. I mean, there's only there's very, very few cases of Elvis showing rage on uh, mm-hmm. uh, on the stage of course there's the, the 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 drugs rant you know the one where he says he, mm-hmm. do, he doesn't read fan magazines because they're all junk mm-hmm. and then he's they're all junk yeah <laughs> that's right and then he says about you know if i find out who wrote it i'll you know rip his tongue out by the root and all that but, <laughs> you know i mean actually i i'm kind of siding with elvis there because a lot of the stance it's it's today is even worse i mean this was in the days before clickbait i mean we know what clickbait mm-hmm. is now uh, just, yeah. So I kind of side with Elvis, you know, it is all junk. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they were, they were saying some terrible things about him in those days. And, uh, I can only imagine, uh, I mean, Elvis, of course he had his, you know, prescription drug problems, but they were saying he was a junkie 
and yeah. um, he was doing heroin and this and that. And of course, we know that's not true, but that's what that's what the hotel employees Jack were saying. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's this really, really fantastic series that I'm in right now um, by Eric Lorenzen called The Elvis Files, and there are these huge coffee table books full of candids. And just to give you like a in uh, a comparison on size. I say it's probably about one and a half times bigger than Elvis Day by Day, which is a huge book. And it's just these full, beautiful photo pages of candids from like two to three year spans. So right now I have volume five and volume six, which is uh, 6970 and 71 to 73. And okay. they're the most incredible books that I think I've ever invested in as for, for candids. Right. I'll have to check those out. Elvis Files. Yep, they're called the Elvis Files, right. and he he used to publish a fan magazine back in the day, I believe, that was kind of similar. But these are just like huge coffee table books, and right now I'm on the hunt for volume three, okay. because or uh, sorry, volume four, uh-huh. uh, sixty five to sixty eight. Man, that book looks so incredible. There's so many photos in these books that you just never seen before. Yeah, and you, you never get tired of looking at photographs of Elvis, that's for sure. Never. Uh, I, I particularly like the uh, Al Wertheimer uh, Elvis in the beginning, mm-hmm. 1956. That was around June, the end of June and the beginning of July, wasn't it? It was really just before the curtain mm-hmm. came down. Parker sort of pulled the curtain down after about summer of 1956. Nobody ever really got that close to Elvis again, uh, as a photographer anyway. Yeah, especially not with high quality stuff. Like Sandy Miller was taking a lot of photos at the gates and stuff, but when it comes to being backstage with Elvis and yeah. taking photos of him, like like those photos, there's nothing like it at all. Uh, July fourth in the Audubon Drive House as well, before he did the Russwood Park uh, concert. Just some mm-hmm. fabulous shots with Barbara Hearn, and I had Barbara Hearn on the show, and she is a darling. She really is a darling. Uh, but it was just unfortunate that it just it, it just didn't work out between them. Unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. she could see, you know, she, I think she felt that Elvis was just surrounded by just too many yes men. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people felt that way. That was one of the many reasons for the demise of his marriage. I mean, just being around all the yes men all the time. I mean, that would have to drive you crazy. Yeah. Yeah. It's strange. There's always these crazy stories. It's strange because, you know, Priscilla would have probably known what she was getting into because we know that obviously she, she came and she, well, uh, she was supposed to be there for so long. Yeah. I mean, she was supposed to be with Dee and Vernon, but we know that she, she moved into Graceland pretty soon (laughs) after she came over. So she kind of knew what the life was like. Uh, mm-hmm. maybe she thought yeah. marriage would change him. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's a mistake. A lot of people make. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you've been to Graceland obviously because you are one of Graceland's top 10 Elvis tribute artists in the world. Tell me a little bit about taking part in the Elvis tribute artists. Well, uh, it's, it's a fantastic experience and believe it or not, it's, it's very laid back. I've been to contests that are, that are qualifiers for, for the ultimate and they seem a lot more tense than the ultimate when you get in. And of course you have some people who will try to, you know, mess you up backstage. <laughs> really? Like, Oh, are you going to do this? You're going to do that? No, I wouldn't do that. Oh, you wearing that suit? Uh, ah. and Right. Like I've heard so many stories from other people. They're like, yep, yep. That happens all the time. Mm, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, it, it really is the way that Graceland themselves run it is, is very laid back and just very, very nice and not, not overly strict at all. And my favorite part about it is, uh, I got there quite early one of the days, um, for the, for the semifinals. And I got in at like four and call time was at five and the doors weren't open yet. So I was just walking around Elvis Presley's Memphis looking at the jumpsuits and going through everything. And it's it's really nice to get into that headspace before the contest. Yeah. Do you like Graceland what Graceland has become, I should say, recently with obviously the guest house and the huge complex now across the road? Do you do you like that? Because some fans are saying it's just getting too big now. Well, I, I don't think anything could get too big with Elvis. I mean, he was a, a very big person. He was a big yeah. personality. He had such a big life. Um, 
I, I personally love the new complex. Uh, I think I went once before the con complex and I've gone every time uh, since it's every other time since it's been there. And really nothing beats it. Uh, I think especially their new jumpsuit display is incredible. The one thing I will say is the prices keep going up. And that's not something that I love because, I mean, Elvis, he always kept his ticket prices low. I mean, that yeah. was really the kernel. But yeah. Yeah. he knew that his fans weren't always rich and he wanted to keep him accessible for everyone. And I think a lot of the new prices are reflecting something else. Yeah. Now, I, I will say, that you, you know, you're saying that you like the new complex and, and, and the things they're doing. And I agree with you because, see, the thing is, is they can't keep, the, you know, they can't sort of have exactly the same things as they did 30 years ago, 20 years ago. They have to keep freshing it up and, and, and adding new things and things like that. If they don't, then people won't be going to see it. They won't be coming back. They need people to revisit as well. Mm -hmm. The one thing that I would wish they would change is how they keep springing up these new exhibits about Muhammad Ali or Jaws or Disney. And um, they keep springing up these uh, these new exhibits that have nothing to do with Elvis. And I, they say it's to bring in new fans. But, you know. Um, yeah, they had dinosaurs or something, didn't they? I think they had. What was that? I, I think they had dinosaurs or something one year, did they? Yeah, I think they did. Now, I don't know what that's got to do with Elvis, but there you go. Yeah, at least Muhammad Ali made sense in some ways. Yes, point. yeah, because they were great friends. They were great friends. Um, Elvis movie. We can't obviously uh, have a long, big discussion about Elvis without mentioning the Baz Luhrmann movie and Austin Butler. You saw it, obviously. Um, what did you think? I thought that it was absolutely incredible because I, I went in with low expectations. Um Going, I mean, there's been so many Elvis biopics made, of course, not on this big of a budget, mm. but that have just been such a disappointment over and over and over again. Um, I think the Jonathan Reese Myers one from 2005 was probably the most authentic Elvis story that's ever been told, but because it's basically word for word of a Gralnik book, uh, even the script in the movie is exactly the words that are written in autobiographies of what was said between Elvis and Priscilla at this specific moment. But, um, I think that movie really did a, a fantastic job on being authentic, but Jonathan Reese Myers' acting was not great. His lip syncing was really not great. And um, just the set design of everything wasn't as beautiful as this this new film. And I think Austin just did an amazing job uh, really embodying who Elvis was, and especially in certain scenes. There's the one scene where Priscilla's leaving, and of course, you know, it's not the most factually accurate scene in the world. But just looking at Austin as Elvis crying on the steps and you see those those prosthetics look exactly like when Elvis got off stage in um, in Jacksonville in 72. And I was just looking at, you know, his cheeks and the makeup and, and the, the puffiness and everything. I'm like, wow, that's that's really, really incredible. Yeah, I mean, what I sort of got a little bit irritated about uh at certain points was people were picking on the the timelines were a little bit out of sync weren't they i mean we know that he did, he, he didn't have the lisa marie jet when they uh divorced and things like that but you know baz did say that they had to concertina some of the, the storyline to, to fit it in mm -hmm. because at the end of the day they told him look you've got two hours 40 minutes we can't do the four hours this is how we're going to do it so mm -hmm. but, but if you see past the the timeline issue uh you're quite correct it it's it is the best elvis movie that's been done to date mm -hmm. it's it's beautifully made uh every single time i watch it i'll notice something else a little detail that they put into the set design i, I don't know how the set design didn't win the oscar well this is it i can't believe that out of eight nominations it didn't win at least one okay maybe it was never going to win best actor because uh brendan had that nearly enough tied up didn't he i think i think he did i didn't even see the whale but i've, I've heard enough about it to mm. know that in all the, it was pretty much a critical consensus that he was going to win but i mean you know especially co set design, yeah set design costume yeah. editing things like that you know it's it's a, it's strange it's strange to say the mm -hmm. least. Okay, um, performance dates. You you you've got uh, you've got a tour coming up soon, have you? Yeah, um, I'm doing as many shows as I possibly can, and I'm starting to get into the uh, the business of producing the shows myself rather than uh, having to be booked by uh, by other promoters. So we're going in and renting the rooms and uh, you know financing the whole 
the whole thing ourselves um just to to move up quicker you know so uh we're doing of course all of our regular florida shows and um in october i'm right now working on a a tour of georgia which is going to be super cool we've got uh, three shows lined up so far um i'm working on a fourth show and uh we're doing some dates in iowa later this year and just trying to to move out of the uh the southeast and try to get to other places and uh hopefully out of the country at some point but you know it's a work in progress because you're based in florida aren't you we are yeah 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 Okay. Um, so yeah. So a- anybody that uh, wants to get more information about Matt Stone and tour dates and so forth, uh, the uh, the website is mattstoneaselvis.com. It's as simple as that, isn't it? Yeah, that's and right. I- and I'll link that below the video anyway, so people thank people, you people can just click on that you've got a youtube channel as well haven't you matt stone as elvis i do and i i can i can tell just by watching the youtube channel just how passionate you are one particular uh, video caught my eye actually every single microphone elvis presley used <laughs> in his career and i was fascinated by it um and my i've i've got to admit that my favorite right believe it or not if you can have a favorite jumpsuit you can have a favorite microphone right can't you <laughs> that's right <laughs> my favorite believe it or not was the sm53 which uh, i think surfaced around september november time in 1970 is that right that's right yeah he used it on the whole september tour and um he used it on some of the stops in uh in november and he used it again in um in november of 71 at the uh, at the salt palace yeah, it's it's unusual because it's got grills on the side of the head of the microphone as well mm-hmm. as, as on the top you know because most people obviously you know this as, as, as a performer you you end address the microphone so you you actually you know you sing into the top of the microphone but this has got grills on the side of it as well hasn't it mm-hmm. yeah and i think it's just decorative um it's it's just a unidirectional mic but it's a certainly a cool looking mic yeah it's it's really beautiful and i've uh, looking at your videos as well again you see your attention to detail you've got an re15 haven't you which elvis used in the comeback special and in the early 1970s that's the way it is and so forth i do yeah i've got a pretty solid uh, arsenal of of microphones um i got the re15 i've got the sm53 I've got um, the CS15 that I used from 75 to 77. Um, Another mic that I use, it's not the same mic that Elvis had, but it looks exactly the same. He used, um, man, I'm trying to remember what it was called. It's in the video. It's the the D224, I think. I'm trying to think of the brand. Um, It's that microphone that you see him using in 73, 74, where he has the pop filter taped down with different colored tape. Yeah. Yes. He has it with yellow and he has it with blue. Um, I just have an SM81, a uh, pretty modern mic that just sounds amazing. It's the same mic that J.D. Sumner used yeah. a lot of the times, actually. Yeah. Yeah. And um, I have the pop filter on there and I have the tape around it. And man, the thing sounds incredible and it looks exactly like the 224. Yeah, well, the the RM, sorry, the RE15 that he used in the 68 uh, comeback special, and then that's the way it is in the early 70s, he used that almost all the way through, didn't he, right till the end? But what people don't realize is after about Elvis on tour, they were putting a windshield on it or a pop filter, weren't they? Because I think mm-hmm. around about the Elvis on tour time, the producer said, you know, there's a lot of uh, popping sounds. We better put a pop filter on that. Mm-hmm. And in 71, he switched to the RE16, which I also have one of, which is actually the same exact microphone as the 15, but it has a uh, a pop filter inside of the grill. Yeah, yeah, built-in pop so filter. So he was using that. He used it on, on tour during the rehearsal when he was doing Always On My Mind in separate ways and used it almost all throughout 71. Mm-hmm. So I think after he used that microphone and the producer saw it's not... Um, it's not making those popping sounds anymore and it seems to not catch the wind as much yeah or yeah. you know just him waving around the microphone they probably told him to put the put the filter on it I'm not sure why but he switched away from the 16 and went back to the 15 and put the windscreen on it 
Elvis always had a, a lot of problem with the, the, the B's and the P's and things like that because listening to the studio outtakes, you know, even mm-hmm. as early as 1960 and things like that, they'd they'd stop a take because they had a uh, a wind pop on uh, Soldier Boy or something like that on, you know, the B in Boy. So, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, it, it's fascinating to hear all those things. And I love, uh, you probably love listening to them as well, the outtakes and the Follow That Dream uh, reissues and, and collector's labels and things like that. As I was saying, I was speaking to Steve Barilli last week, and Steve actually provides uh, photographs for the album covers of Follow That Dream. Real great guy. And he actually saw, oh, really? he actually saw Elvis uh, on June the 10th, the afternoon show, the one that became Prince from Another Planet. And he was only thirteen at the time. That was the first time he'd seen Elvis. It was it was a it was a great it was a great episode to 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 hear a thirteen year old boy the first time seeing Elvis at Madison Square Garden. Can you imagine that? Wow! <laughs> oh yeah, that's super cool. Yeah, super cool. <laughs> yeah, I love those outtakes, and I really really love what they're doing now with the um, the new albums that they're putting out just about every year of uh, the studio sessions. And giving us the alternate takes in a in a better master than we used to, and I think it's really interesting that for a really long time, all the new albums they were putting out, they were just adding the Royal Philharmonic or all these strings and kind of taking away from the original arrangements and the original instruments and kind of drawing back Elvis's voice a little bit. But when you hear these studio takes that are now undubbed without the strings, especially like um, Elvis in Nashville. Yes, it's in my opinion how they should have been released in the first place. I mean, there are some songs where horns and strings can add a little bit of something, but songs like "The Sound of Your Cry," I mean, Elvis's voice is—it's so alive at that point, and that you really can't appreciate the rawness and, and his raw talent when you have all of the overproduction that Felton was putting in later. Mm-hmm. We can make the morning unbelievable, mm-hmm. unbelievable, undubbed. Uh, yeah, I mean, hats off to Matt Rossbang that 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 engineered those two sets, uh, seventy one and seventy. Brilliant. Um, Agent Elvis, what do you what do you think? I wasn't really a fan of it. Um, I uh, I don't have Netflix, and I just I pirated the show on uh, on one of those websites. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I started watching it, and I accidentally started with episode ten, and I was very confused. And then I went back and I watched episodes one and two and was just, I was trying to get into it. Like uh, it's Elvis. You have to like it in some sense because it's Elvis, but really it's Matthew McConaughey yeah, <laughs> talking yeah. as if he is Elvis. But I mean, it's, I can only hear Matthew McConaughey in it. Yeah. I mean, it, it's very adult, you know, it's, it's it definitely, it's definitely not for kids. It's, it's an adult cartoon, isn't it? Yeah, I mean it's it's really marketed towards people my age, so you think I'd like it, but mm, not yeah. not a huge fan. I, I think the the main clientele they're looking for for the show is, you know, young men who think that all that stuff is hilarious. But it it almost seems like there's so much of it that it just gets tiresome real fast. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I I. I covered it on a, a show there a couple of weeks ago i think the artwork is good you know i mean the the, the drawing and, and everything like that is, is great um and i don't think that matthew has overdone uh, elvis accent i mean he could have gone really sort of uh-huh and oh, okay thanks baby and all that but uh, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think he's overdone it too much but i know what you're saying you can only hear matthew doing elvis yeah i only hear matthew's voice it's not like austin was talking like this the entire time <laughs> <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah but yeah i mean it's uh it's an interesting show to say the least it's just it's a little bit it's a little bit too much i think I think Sally Hodel put it really well that the Elvis movie finally humanized Elvis um, and kind of got him away from the character, which I, I don't mind it because, I mean, that's what brought me in in the first place. But we finally had a really, really solid way of bringing in new fans and getting Elvis away from just being, you know, a Halloween costume. Mm. And then we put this out. And it just seems like we took a step in the right direction and then we took 10 steps backwards. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. 
it, it, a lot of people are saying it could actually do harm to the good that the, the movie has done. Because without doubt, the new Elvis movie has uh, regenerated an interest, and by younger people as well. Uh, it's, it has. It's created new it fans. It really has. Yeah. Um, how did you feel about Austin doing the first part of Unchained Melody? I thought they'd probably overdone the prosthetics a little bit too much. I thought that their prosthetics were good except for the chin. I think that it was almost like his chin was missing. So his face looked fatter and droopier than Elvis's was. Because Elvis, I mean, his face was obviously a lot bigger than it was in Aloha. But it really seemed like bloat underneath his skin. And this almost just made it like droopy fat under his skin that Elvis really didn't have. So I think if, if they had added that chin in there and made his cheeks look a little bit less saggy, it would have looked a lot more convincing. But, I mean, there's still people out there who are convinced it's Elvis the whole time or Austin the whole time. Yeah, I and know. And still can't figure out when the change is, which that, I don't know how anybody that, can that do that. That really, really confused me. I thought, how can you not tell which is Austin and which is Elvis? Uh, another question I, I, I keep asking myself as well is, why didn't they just use Elvis for the whole sequence? Yeah. Yeah. It would have meant something. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, there was there was talk that um, Baz didn't think he was going to be able to use that sequence. So mm-hmm. they, sh- they I'm sh- sure that they fought against it. I mean, EP has been fighting against using 77 footage for years. I'm sure they weren't very happy about it. But I mean, the movie certainly generated a whole lot of income. So maybe hopefully we'll have a change of heart on that on that field and uh, maybe even get a remastered Elvis in concert. Yeah, and also we need more of the Elvis on tour uh, footage released mm-hmm. as well, don't we? Absolutely. I mean, when they did the greatest, uh, what's it called, the greatest performances mm. DVD in 91, that was the last time that anybody went into those vaults and grabbed that footage because they released a few new songs for that DVD. And uh, since then, they've just been letting 40 hours of footage just rot away until Baz had access to it, and he remastered it, and it looks beautiful, and mm-hmm. it's in the film. Mm-hmm. But I think it's all to do with, you know, uh, red tape and legislations and, and copyrights and things like that, isn't it? Because is it TCM that own Elvis on tour at the moment? I think it's Warner Brothers, oh, Warner Brothers. which I would... Which, I mean, they released the new film, so I guess that's how Baz got the access to it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it needs to, it needs to get out there. But again, it's, it's not something that Baz is going to be able to do overnight. I mean, it will be a very, Mm -hmm. very lengthy project. Yeah, it would, especially being that there's 40 hours of footage. Mm. Mm. I mean, can you imagine all the stuff that they did? And I'm not sure 40 hours refers to like every camera. So you'd have, you know, four hours or four cameras recording the same show. And then Mm. that makes four hours. I'm not sure if that's what they mean Mm. when they Mm. say 40 hours of footage. But, I mean, we saw it in the film. We saw the the new stuff. Um, Just little glimpses of it for, like, half a second. Yes, very, very, Um, almost like a tease, wasn't it? mm Mm-hmm, yeah. (laughs) And some of it, I was like, wait, I haven't seen that before. Wait, what was that? (laughs) That's not in it. (laughs) Great that you get the DVD and you can pause it (laughs) or slow Mm -hmm. it right down. Yeah, Yeah. slow it down, yeah. Uh, The uh, the makeup artist for... um, for the movie, it posted a, a time-lapse of everything that they did um, for Austin and putting on the prosthetics. And I slowed that thing down as slow as I possibly could and just was watching every little thing that they did uh, during that transformation. Because Austin naturally doesn't look very much like Elvis. They just they did an incredible job transforming him. Did they use deep fake for some of the sequences? You know, like when he walks into a little less conversation, uh, live a little, love a little. They did. When they put his face onto the original movie sequences, they did. There's that part, and uh, there's also something in uh, in that montage for the 60s. They put Austin's face on Elvis for the uh, for the old McDonald part. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matt, it's been really, really great fun talking to you. I think we could go on for another couple of hours easily. Easily. <laughs> in <laughs> fact, we should probably do another show and cover what we haven't covered this time. Um, it's always an honor talking about Elvis. If anybody wants to talk about Elvis, feel free to message me because I could talk about it all day. And let's just uh, mention again, mattstoneaselvis.com website. Uh, that is all you really, really need to know about uh, Matt and his shows and how to get tickets and so forth. Thank you so much, Steve. Thank you for having me on. Thank you for the promotion and uh, hope to be on again soon. Thanks, Matt, and take care. Thank you. Bye-bye. 
My thanks again to Matt for joining me on today's show. It's so refreshing to speak to someone his age with so much knowledge and passion for Elvis. His enthusiasm was evident in the way he spoke, and this carries over into his stage performances. I would recommend visiting his website, mattstoneaselvis.com, to see for yourself. Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel broadcasts live every Sunday on YouTube when we have lots of Elvis fun, including an Elvis quiz with a prize for the most correct answers, Elvis history, interactive polls, smoking hot photos, and much more. Viewers can chat live with other Elvis fans and phone into the show and talk all things Elvis with me. I hope you can join in with the fun on Sundays. Until then, thanks for listening, and I hope you can join me next time on Elvis the Ultimate Fan Channel.